This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to introduce my friend who I met in Jerusalem with eagle's wings, Teo Hayashi, who is the founder of the Dunamis Movement in Brazil, which is a Christian student movement in universities around the country. There are Dunamis movements in around 40 universities in Brazil with hundreds of students uh, in each one. Teo, who has one of the world's greatest followings, has been a missionary and a pastor around the world, from Asia to North Carolina, and is now at home in Brazil. Teo, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Hey, Mark. Thank you for having me. Such an honor. So privileged to be here. So happy. Thank you. Well, I love the passage you chose. You chose from the book of Esther, which I believe is the last book of the Bible. You chose what is just a magnificent verse, which is Esther 4.14. So why don't you tell us what happens in Esther 4.14? and why it's so meaningful to you. All right. Well, the whole book is amazing. I love the book of Esther just because it's so counter everything that we learn in terms of morality and religion. And uh, there's so many ironic reversals. But I'd say the pinnacle of Esther is when her um, cousin or uncle Mordecai confronts her and puts her really in an awkward position, but yet so necessary for her to fulfill the purposes of God in her life. And he says in Esther 4, 13 and 14, the two verses there, that paragraph really catches me. Mordecai tells Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish yet. Who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this is the key phrase for myself. Interesting. Makes me wonder. Yeah, it's such a magnificent phrase in in so many ways. One is that Mordecai does not come out and tell her, you were chosen for a time like this, but he makes her come to that conclusion by herself. Yes. He says, who knows, but that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. Why is that passage uh, so meaningful to you, particularly the last clause? When I was in Jerusalem, uh, you were there as well, and, and we got to meet so many people. Such an amazing uh, experience. And uh, one of the things that I've come to learn with my um, Jewish brothers is that uh, to answer what the question is very Jewish. That is something that I picked up from this text, you know, in another light, even after my trip, because uh, he offers a question to Esther, and, um, which actually takes her into a journey where she will have a sense of ownership of the truth. Because I believe that truth revealed is stronger than truth imposed. So he, as a mentor to her, or as a caretaker, Esther, as we all know, was raised by Mordecai. He takes her to a journey, I believe maybe in her upbringing, that was a common thing that Mordecai would offer her counsels in forms of questions. And once again, he goes, yet who knows, you may have been born for such a time as this. And so that causes her to go into an introspection that now she comes to the revelation and in that revelation comes the courage needed 
to face the king of Persia. And so I feel that a lot of times that is the way that God Almighty deals with us in mercy and not as imposing, but dealing with us as his children, questioning and just throwing out uh, cues that will take us into journeys, quests, spiritual journeys where we will come to revelations. And so this theme is common in my life, personally speaking. Uh, Yes, it's so interesting. I hadn't thought of what you just pointed out, which is that this is also teaching us how to be a mentor, is that uh, a mentor does not come out and just prescribe what the protege should do, but provides the protege with the tools and the mental infrastructure to come to the conclusions by herself. Very interesting. That's what Mordecai does. One of the realizations or revelations that Mordecai leads Esther to by herself is that God has a plan for her. Do you think um, in your life and the life of the tens of thousands of young people that you pastored, does God have a plan for each of us? Oh, yeah. I firmly believe in that. How is it revealed? I think this is the key thing about chapter 4, verse 14. He says, if you remain completely silent at this time, deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. So for me, it's very conditional. He says, if you remain completely silent. And so, so for me, the sovereignty of God is displayed in this verse when he says, listen, his plan is going to be fulfilled, whether you like it or not, whether you say yes or not. He is the sovereign almighty God. However, it is his desire that you would be a co-laborer with almighty God in the unfolding of his purposes. And so in this manner, her mentor displays this and says, Listen, I want to talk to you in a very uh, warm manner, but also in a sobering manner. God is going to fulfill what he's going to do, regardless if you say yes or no, but he would like to have you in the plot. And she goes into history. We talk about until today. And so I feel God has a sovereign plan over humanity, over us as his sons and daughters. However, we are always faced with the choice. We have a choice to say yes to his purposes or no, I'm going to live my way. And so I believe we go in a journey and we're constantly faced with a crossroads. Everything we do, we'll we'll go a little bit more and we'll see some more crossroads and and we'll advance and see more crossroads. And there's always, if you remain quiet or if you are silent, if you say yes, if you take a step of faith, if you will speak for those that don't have a voice. And so I am constantly seeing how he woos me into his purposes, always honoring my dignity, giving me free choice or free will. Would you rather do this with me or you can just live on your own? But I'm going to continue unfolding my purposes because I am sovereign. And so I guess my question, what I try to portray to the young people that I lead is, listen, God is speaking. God has a plan for you. God wants you to be part of the story. But at the end of the day, it's a matter of choice. And we need to choose if we want to say yes to him or not. That's right. It, it's a partnership. And Mordecai brings out it's a partnership between people and God. But there's a junior partner and a senior partner. The plan's going to happen. But what a gift to Esther and to each of us to be God's partner in helping us carry out the plan. The plan's going to happen because we're the junior partner. Exactly. But God himself is asking each of us to play a part in the unfolding of this plan. I mean, what a gift. So when students hear that, when young people hear that, that must be the most empowering message they've heard in their entire lives. Oh, I'm sure. 
I mean, it was for myself. I remember when I grasped that and I was uh, in college out in Pennsylvania. And I, I remember it was actually during spring break. I was inside a club in Tampa, Florida, just kind of living for myself. And I had a supernatural encounter. I mean, I don't know how to explain it. Tell us about it. What, what happened? So you're, you're 19, 20 years old in Tampa, Florida on spring break? Yeah, my sophomore year in college, spring break. I was in Ybor City going nuts with some of my buddies. It was just a big blur. It's one of those, you know, w- when you're young and do stupid stuff. And anyway, just having fun. But I mean, and I was just kind of living for myself. I was in the dance floor. I had a drink in my hand. Everything happening around me. And suddenly I sobered up. I had been under the influence of alcohol for hours. I sobered up in a matter of 30 seconds and a conviction came into me. Nobody preached at me. Nobody talked to me. Nobody prayed for me. Nothing. I was on my own in the middle of a crowd and I found myself crying. And I'm thinking to myself, you have lost it. What is wrong with you? So I set my drink down and I run to the restroom. I throw water in my face and I'm looking at myself thinking, what is happening? So I lock myself in one of the stalls and I grew up in a Christian home, a Methodist background. I started praying like I knew how to do when I went. I used to go to Sunday school as a kid. I said, God, I know you're out there. I, I know you hear me. What is happening? And I heard a voice inside me. Now, people will ask, how did you hear that voice? It's a conviction. It just came inside of me. And, and, and people say, did you think the voice? I did not think these words. It just kind of, it's very hard to explain empirically. But I did hear I have brought you for such a time as this. I've created you to live for something greater than yourself. That's exactly Esther 414, for such a time as this. Exactly. That's what you heard in the bathroom stall in Tampa. In Tampa. And I get out of there and I'm like, there's something happened. I just can't keep partying tonight. Maybe I'll go tomorrow. But I I get out there and I I meet some of my buddies. I say, bro, I'm getting a cab. I'm out. I'll see you guys tomorrow. So I leave. When I leave is when I make a decision, I say, I got to stop my college career right now. I'll come back later, but I'm just kind of going through the motions. I feel empty. I feel like I'm just kind of following a routine. I'm going to classes, trying to get good grades. I want to get a job afterwards. I want to make money. But I'm thinking I just had a sense of emptiness. And I said, I'm going to go figure myself out. And so that night I decided to stop my I'm going to finish my sophomore year. I'm going to take a break from school and I'm going to join a Christian mission organization and I'm going to do mission work. And so that's what I did. The following semester, fall semester, I was out of there. I was being trained by a Christian mission organization and was being shipped out to Asia to live in slums in New Delhi. And that's where I started finding myself. Wow. Not that I would do that for the rest of my life. But it was a season as I fed the homeless, the hungry, the street kids. And that's what I did for three years, in and out, out of Asia, Philippines, New Delhi, and going back to mainland America. And sometimes my training was in London, in the UK. And I would go back and forth. And I totally thought to myself, I feel so full. I had a suitcase of clothes. I had Bible, some books, some notebooks, and that was all my possessions. And I never felt so full. And my college buddies, out in America, telling me, you are nuts. Bro, what are you doing? Come back. And I'm thinking, no, 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 man. I got to do this for me. I got to find my truth. So I grew up in a Christian home, but I just kind of went through the motions. That is where I found my faith. When I was going through those years of a quest, of a search, and that is when Esther 414 becomes my life model. 
I am born for such a time as this. Beautiful and fascinating. But let's extend this. All right. So you're in the bathroom stall and you have literally an Exodus 414 encounter. You had the opportunity like Esther did to reject it. Yeah, I did. You didn't have to follow it and live your life accordingly as you did starting probably the next day and certainly in the fall semester, continuing to say you could have rejected it and just gone back to the drinking and dancing, but you didn't. You allowed it to transform your life and that was your choice. How often have you seen people, particularly the young people that you pastor, have a moment like you did and then choose either one way or the other way? Part of the whole thing of Esther 414 is that it's a pinnacle moment. We understand that the book of Esther is set up a hundred years after the exile. Not all the Jews have gone back to Jerusalem. Some of them choose to still stay in Persia. But in Persia, they're living as a lower class and they're oppressed. And so Esther is brought up under that thing of, you know, I can't take this. Mordecai seen her. So what I'm trying to say, it's been boiling up. It doesn't come out of nowhere. No, it, it, for me, my, myself, it boiled up. It came to a point where even the way I grew up in Brazil, I am uh, half Japanese. So I grew up in a Japanese community in Brazil. So the largest Japanese population outside Japan is in Brazil, in Sao Paulo. You know, that's my social life. I went to an American school in Sao Paulo. So I kind of grew up very multicultural, but at the same time, not really finding home. So I'm in America. This is not my home. I'm in Brazil. This is not my home. I'm with my kind and they're eating Japanese food singing Japanese songs. Our church was a, a Japanese Methodist church. This is not my home. So I'm on a constant search where I'm thinking, you know what? I'm going to go to America for college. I don't know if I'll come back. I don't know if I'm going to stay in America. I'm searching. So what I'm trying to say is I've been on a search since I was a kid, especially when I was eight years old and my dad walked out on us. And so when my dad, who was a Christian minister, walked out on us, caught an adultery affair, and the church came on him and he said, you know what? I'll give up everything and I'm going to choose to live this life. So that is registering in me and it's boiling up. Eight years old, my teen years, high school, I was a soccer player, went to college to play ball in America, get there. And I'm thinking, this is not fulfilling me. All right, well, are you going to get a diploma? Are you going to live the American dream? Somehow this is still not fulfilling me. I was in a relationship that wasn't fulfilling me. I come to a point where in the bathroom of a club in Tampa, I have this Esther 414 moment. And I feel that was the pinnacle. So I believe Mordecai, he is so strategically puts that phrase, that question out there, understanding the history of Esther being brought up as an orphan, Esther being brought up under an oppression, understanding that she was a minority, understanding that she was always trying to get some space to breathe. And suddenly he says, well, you know, you've sensed the pain that maybe all of us are sensing and you're in a position that we're not in. So maybe you were born for such a time as this. So I believe people come to that place. You pointed out that in both Esther's experience and your experience, the revelation was boiling, but you didn't know it was boiling when it was boiling. Yes. You didn't know, right? You were. No, <laughs> you don't. No, you were drunk on the dance floor. You didn't know it was boiling and about to, I don't know what the analogy is, but about to come to fruition in five minutes. You, you had no idea. I had no clue. But see, this is the thing. I think we underestimate the power of crisis, you know, and we go through so many crises in our life. And actually, these crises are pushing us closer and closer 
to that Esther 414 moment, which is, I would say, it's this kind of like this eureka moment. Like, aha, I get it. I understand why I had a rough in the past, or I understand why I didn't have all the opportunities that the other kids had, or I understand why I'm so privileged like I am. Because a lot of people are, are, are born with privilege and they carry guilt. So that was my reality. Even in Brazil with so much social inequality, at times I would carry guilt. Why do I have the privilege that I have for such a time as this? So, so I understand that Esther, she probably was the most gorgeous girl in class or in her high school. And so she's questioning, why am I so beautiful for such a time as this? And so whether you come from suffering or from privilege, you are faced with questions that when the word of the Lord, of the Almighty God comes through the mouth of his prophets or his servants like Mordecai was, it just brings connection to the plot. Aha, uh-huh. that's the eureka moment. And so I believe a lot of young people are going through that because God hasn't changed. That's how he's been working since the days of Esther. That's right. Now, let's take a young man or woman today who is the same age now as you were then when you had this extraordinary moment at the bathroom or in the dance floor of the club in Tampa. And they come to you and they say, I have all my material needs met, yet I feel this existential dissatisfaction, this lack of fulfillment. What can I do, if anything, to welcome God into my life and to direct me with the same profundity that he did for you and they did for Esther? I feel we have this impression in the West that we need to search God. Let's go look for God. And we don't really realize that he's been searching for us. And so we have a lot of noise around us and we want to hear God. And we say, God, speak to me, answer me. We want to hear you. What is your will? And uh, a lot of times I feel like just come into a place in your life where you will silence the distractions and silence the buzz around you. A lot of people think that if only I had the opportunities and so-and-so, at times opportunities and the abundance of options will actually confuse you. And that doesn't necessarily make you happier when you have opportunities. I found that in my life, I've seen so many happy people that never had that many opportunities. And they just made out of whatever they had happiness. And so I feel a lot of times when people are looking for God, you will find him in not very You know, we have this, at least the evangelical mind has this thing of this supernatural appearance or a theophany. And I feel that a lot of times it is in your contemplation, it is in your meditation, it is in your room. And I actually, a few hours before stepping into this uh, podcast, was talking to one of my staff members here. And I was telling him, hey, you know what, if you need to take two days off of work, go on a retreat. And just kind of leave your cell phone at home. Make sure your wife knows where to call you for an emergency. Just go on in like a silent retreat, man. Take some books, some notebooks, take the Bible and just go read and just spend time with yourself and just kind of quiet your spirit. Because I feel that when people understand that he is nearer than we think, we will have God encounters. Oh, that, that's right. That, that, that's Elijah's still small voice. Exactly. Beautifully said. You know, he was expecting the thunderstorm. He was expecting fire. And suddenly God is coming in a very unusual way. Yet it is so unusual as we look through history. Right. We just have to open ourselves to it. I, I know I, um, my friend Bill Simon, who was a, a previous guest on the podcast, told me the story. And I read about it subsequently about Mother Teresa, who had an encounter very much like yours 
on a bus in Delhi where she said Jesus came to her and told her to stop doing what she was doing and to start doing what she ended up making her life's work. And she said she spent the rest of her life yearning for another such message, for another such encounter, and it never came. Yeah. <laughs> this is crazy that you're mentioning that. I grew up hearing so many of those stories and something in my, in my heart said, you will have one of those. And so I literally spent a decade from when I was 23 through 33, every single day I prayed, God, give me the supernatural encounter. Never happened. And finally, I was released when I felt to myself, if you can hear him, if you are convinced that he has a purpose for your life, that you have a mission and that he loves you and forgives you, do you still feel the need to have a, an encounter? And I said, God, I release you from that expectation. And I found peace in that. If it happens later in the future, that's good. If it doesn't, I'm having to learn to be satisfied and find spirituality on the day-to-day -day things. And you also have, so evidence in this conversation, you have such appreciation and gratitude for that one encounter. Oh, huge. I've been talking about it for the last... You don't need another one. No, exactly. <laughs> I've been talking about it everywhere I go. And so thank you for allowing me to share this here too. No, thank you for sharing it with us. Just beautiful. So the concluding question is always moving from one text, the sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is Andre Malroux's uh, 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And uh, he tells the story. He said, um, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, I've learned two things. One, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. <laughs> Beautiful. So in all your years of being a pastor and a leader of pastors and a leader to so many Christians around the world through so many media in so many ways, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? Well, one of the things that I've learned is mankind is on a constant learning curve of forgiveness. That's one of the things that I've seen. And usually we'll do to our neighbors what we do to ourselves. And I've found that a lot of people that act in uh, hatred towards their neighbors deep down inside have uh, self-hatred. And people that aren't willing to forgive is usually because they carry guilt in themselves. So a lot of times, it's especially when I work with type A leaders, is just go easy on yourself, man. And that's something that I've had to tell myself often. And even my wife and my family reminds me of that. Just take it easy on yourself. Because uh, if I take it easy on myself, I take it easy on people around me. I'm not trying to advocate for poor work ethics or anything like that. What I'm trying to say is something even deeper. I feel mankind always reflects their inner reality to their outer behavior. That's one of the things that I've found. Number two is um, I've always seen mankind come to a place where, you know, when Jesus in the Gospels, he says, if you are faithful with little over much, you will be given, you will be put to rule over much. I feel that that is, in a way, it's still the concept of sowing and reaping. And that's one of the things that has not gone out of fashion. During the pandemic, I live in the city. So uh, me and a friend, we did this uh, kind of like a garden, like a wooden box garden and started planting stuff. And uh, the other day I went out and uh, picked up some mint leaves and I was doing minty out of my own box garden, wooden box garden. And I thought to myself, that's never going to go out of style. And just as I plant it and uh, I'm going to reap it, 
So whatever you plant, whatever you sow, you will reap. Now, that's one of the things that as I talk to people, different walks of life, they are living what they sow. And so that brings me sobriety. I want to make sure that I'm always sowing things that will bring life. And so uh, that's the two things. You will reflect outside what you have inside and you will reap what you sow. I've seen across the board. Magnificent. Actually, what your first lesson about um, how you reflect on others, what you feel yourselves, it reminds me of one of the great Jewish teachings about the famous expression in the Torah, you should love your neighbor as yourself. And this is a very difficult commandment for many of the people who studied it, because they said, before we tell people to love the neighbors themselves, let's see how they love themselves. So the problem with that is, if people aren't loving themselves appropriately, like, just stop there. Exactly. I think it was Norman Lamb who gave a sermon in 1964, right after the Kitty Genovese incident in New York, where what supposedly happened, it may or may not actually happen, but maybe it did, is that Kitty Genovese was a young woman who was attacked and there were lots of bystanders who didn't respond. And his point is these people don't love themselves. You can't love yourself if you see a woman being attacked and you don't respond. Exactly. That was the learning is that it's exactly what you're saying is that before you love your neighbor as yourself, be careful that you love yourself in the right way. And love is not just what the dictionary defines it wrongly as an intense feeling of deep affection. Love involves action. And be sure that, that you love yourself appropriately. And only then can you love your neighbor as yourself in the way that God intended. Yeah, I would actually say that love involves hate. In a way, love involves the hatred of anything that comes to violate what you love. And so at times, I feel when we start stepping towards a relative perspective of what love is, it becomes very uh, superficial. And so I think that we see the reflection of that even in today's young generation, as you see suicide and self-mutilation skyrocket. That's something I'm having to deal on a constant day-to-day thing of kids cutting themselves and suicide. And I'm thinking, you know what, that's a deep reflection. When you look what we've been doing to our neighbors, that just reflects as we see the suicide rates skyrocket, we also see the hatred to our neighbors skyrocket as well because they are very tied to each other. Absolutely beautiful. Just one concluding thought. You know, I was so fortunate to be able to meet you in Israel with Eagle's Wings in in Jerusalem. What did that trip mean to you? What did you learn on the trip in every respect, both uh, religiously and politically, socially? I mean, we had such a good time, but what did it actually mean to you? Glad you asked, Mark. That was so powerful. That time out in Jerusalem was very life-changing. I've been to Jerusalem twice, and I plan to make it out there um, a lot more. My first time there, I heard from uh, another fellow pastor, Rusty Nelson, that works alongside Bishop Alabama. Stearns, yes. And Reverend Rusty said something that was powerful. He said, I inherited the love for Israel from my father. And my father brought me and my uh, brothers out here, and he would periodically bring us out here. And I'm a father of two boys. I have a four-year-old and a three-year-old. They're 18 months apart. And I'm actually making the plans. When are they old enough to travel there and actually make something out of the trip? Because it deeply impacted me. I feel that as a, a Protestant Christian, if I would have had the experience to make it out to Israel earlier, it would have affected the way that I would live my spirituality. I was very ignorant of the way that I saw the political scene of what happens in that section of the world. I never realized how influenced I was by the media and by certain biases. In my mind, I allowed a dichotomy 
where I saw Israel, politically speaking, as totally detached from the biblical Israel and not understanding that they are related and they're one. And so for me, I found peace in certain political views, thinking I can be even anti-Israel in the political sense, but be pro-Israel in a biblical sense, which is impossible. And so once you understand what is happening there, and a lot of it, you know, of course, I could have had a conversation with a specialist and he would sit me down and would explain, but it's not the same as going to the land. I had an experience in the land where I really started understanding and feeling things. It, it, it's a very sensorial experience. I don't want to sound mystical, but at the same time, you can't detach the spirituality of the land. And so for me, even going back to the, the stories that I read in the Bible and being there, it just carried a different weight. Today, I would say that I feel there is a spiritual weight to what I do, especially when I approach certain scriptures that deal with Israel. I feel more comfortable talking about it. I feel more confident talking about it. Recently, I was talking to some fellow pastors, and I told them, you guys need to make it out to Brazil. How can you speak about a man that was a Jew? And uh, you say to people that they need to follow this man, but you've never been to find out his family, about his, his land, his neighborhood. You never even walked his streets. And then when we look at the Apostle Paul and the writings uh, for our New Testament as Christians, he is a Jewish man. He's a Jewish thinker. And uh, how can we not go to his land to understand it? He, Apostle Paul, that writes basically what Christian church should be like. I mean, we make an effort to go travel to Europe, do vacation. We do missions in Africa, but we're not even going to Israel. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. I had gone to 38 nations before I made it to Israel. Israel was my 39th. And so for me, once I landed and did my first trip in Israel, I left and I thought to myself, I even said, I said, forgive me, Lord. Why did I leave Israel to be the 39th nation to visit? I've preached in most of the nations that I usually travel because I'm invited to speak. So I'm doing ministry. How can I do ministry for a Lord, my Lord, my God, and I haven't even visited his house. It's, it's just, there's no coherence to that. So anyways, that, that's all to say of how it just brought things into perspective to myself. And I think that there's spiritual encounters that await for a lot of people that would make it out there with the right heart. And so that's something that I've, uh, I've been uh, very intentional. If it wasn't for the pandemic, I've uh, made it out to Israel my third time by now. Absolutely. Well, God bless you. And, and God bless Bishop Stearns for bringing us together in Jerusalem. For sure. And I, I would love nothing more than for our family to be with your family in Jerusalem. I, I have a, my kids are a few years older than yours, but we should all get together in Jerusalem. Uh, we definitely need to. <laughs> as soon as we can. Hey, Mark, thank you so much for this platform. I appreciate everything you've been doing. And uh, this is beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you. You are the God of the brain.